You're listening to audio from Mercy's Door Community Church in Mascouda, Illinois. If you'd like to get more information about Mercy's Door, we'd love for you to connect with us on Facebook or check us out at mercysdoor.org. Church, we're continuing to march forward through this theology of words. Week by week, we have asked for the Lord's help opening His Holy Scriptures to become more fluent in the language of the heavens, the language of the Word, the one Jesus Christ, that we would have the Lord remove from us the lesser messages and the lesser tongue of the dead and dying earth and replace it with words of life, with the gospel, with the message of reconciliation. And by God's decree, we've ended up this morning in the book of 2 Corinthians here in chapter 5 in a passage that lays out for us the very reason why we're still here. The very reason why the children of God, the ransomed church of God, remains among the dead. Because we possess something that the Lord has asked us to give away. And so this morning, beginning in verse 11, where Paul says, Therefore... Knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. We hang out on therefore and ask the question, Paul, whenever you say therefore, you're reckoning back to that which you have previously labored over. And so here in verse 11, when you say therefore, what he's saying is in light of everything that I've just written, all the work that I've done to pour myself out here in chapter 4 and going into chapter 5, as in the beginning of chapter 4, he pours out for the church of Corinthian the riches and the majesty of the gospel the light of the gospel that is shining through the saints of Jesus Christ. There in in, in chapter 4 and verse 1, as he works his way through that to exalt and extol the riches of Jesus Christ to the Corinthian church here in this letter, that Jesus Christ, the very Son of God, has come and lived a perfect life and died the death that we deserve to die and risen again victorious over sin and death and that he has bestowed that treasure upon his church. That we are like jars of clay possessing this treasure purchased for us from the troves of heaven and deposited into the people of Christ. This is treasures in jars of clay, Paul writes about in chapter 4. And then in verse 5, says, in light of that, in light of what Christ has achieved on our behalf, in light of this gift that he has deposited into his church, we have been set apart for heaven. That's the beginning of chapter 5, the therefore, that we have been set aside. We are now citizens of the heavenly country, that we belong to a people who call God dad, that we belong to a people who have a seat at the family table feasting with the one risen Christ. He says, in light of this, that we are mere jars of clay possessing a treasure too great to speak, belonging to the heavenly country, therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, Verse 11, we persuade others, Paul says. Knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. Having having seen the awe-inspiring face of God in the one Jesus Christ, we persuade others. It is from this knowing of the wonder and the majesty of God in Jesus Christ that we persuade others. Paul is laying out for the Corinthian church to whom he's written this letter the reason that he is compelled in his ministry of persuasion, why he's bothered to write this letter, why he's marched among the nations carrying this this message of reconciliation, the gospel. He says, because I've known the fear of the Lord. 
But what we are is known to God. And I hope it is known also to your conscience. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others, but what we are is known to God. This is a contrast that Paul sets up as he opens up this portion of the letter where what he's saying to the Corinthian church is, out of seeing the face of my holy God who knows me, this God, we are, he says, what we are is known to this God. So while, I, I, while my aim is to persuade others, my aim is not to persuade God. Then nothing that I'm doing in my ministry, Paul says, is to persuade God of a thing. What we are is known to God. And having seen that God face to face and been struck with awe, I set out to persuade you, but not God. He says what we are is known to God in church. What you are is known to God. You say, Adam, well, what are we? Paul, what are you? We are sinners ransomed. Sinners ransomed. Every person you meet, you and I, every person you meet on the street, every person in this room is either a sinner condemned or a sinner ransomed. And Paul says, the Lord knows what I am. I am a sinner ransomed. Doing a ministry of reconciliation among sinners condemned. Kind of pause here, you know, my, um, my five-year-old, Gus, he's, along with the rest of us, learning the language of the gospel. With the rest of us, he's learning these words of life. And so at bedtime, I, a lot of times I like to cuddle him until he falls asleep, and we'll have just some of the most profound theological conversations that I'll have in my life. And he'll ask questions, and I'll ask him, Gussie, what does it mean that Jesus died for you? And wrestling with that, he doesn't understand yet. Wrestling with that, he'll say, well, Jesus went to the cross so that I don't have to die on the cross. And I'll say, no. Did Jesus die for Peter? He's like, yeah, Jesus died for Peter. Did Peter die on a cross? Yeah, Peter died on a cross. Well, then Jesus must have died for something more than to save us from a cross, right? Yeah, okay. He's five. but I'm not five, and this is hard to get my hands around. Right, what we get wrong when we're thinking about Jesus is that somehow he ransomed the world, that he has converted you from a sinner condemned to a sinner redeemed, from a sinner condemned to a sinner restored, to a sinner condemned to a sinner forgiven by taking a beating from some, Roman, from some Romans and Jews. And yet, Many other than Christ, many martyrs for Christ have faced the same fate at a Roman cross, been burned at the stake and done so singing songs and with a smile on their face, courageously facing their death, dying with confidence, while our Savior Jesus trembled in the Garden of Gethsemane, bleeding drops of blood from his pores. And you're telling me that the, the champion of earth, that the, that the Son of Man, that, that the Son of God, Jesus Christ, faced a Roman cross? with more trepidation than a martyr? No. Jesus didn't die to spare you from a cross. In fact, Jesus may have died that you might face a cross one day boldly. Jesus died to ransom you from your sin, Gus. Jesus died to ransom you from your sin, 
church. What Jesus faced at Calvary was far more than two pieces of wood, punches, blows, mockery, and jeering of man. What Jesus faced at the cross is what the Lord promised to Adam and Eve in the curses laid in the garden when he said to them, you, my beloved creation from the, from the deep troves of love in my heart, I say to you, my beloved creation, remain within the beautiful boundaries that I have placed for you. Remain under my care and provision, under my direction and commands. You are my beloved created beings. Stay here where it is safe because I assure you that the day that you cross this boundary, you shall surely die. And yet day by day, sinful men like you and I continue to breathe in and breathe out and stand on two feet and even prosper in our sinful pursuits. Why? Jesus said, or God said, on that day you shall surely die. But every single day that the hand of the wrath of the Lord is stayed, it is stayed because the Lord has peered through time and space to that moment at Calvary where Jesus Christ would make a payment that you and I were due to make. He died the death that he assured us we would die. And you say, oh, I don't know that I get that, Adam. I, I know I don't get that either. But I can tell you this. That on the day that Jesus hung on a cross, suspended between God and man, that he absorbed every drop of sin that belonged to his church. I need you to try to, 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 to reconcile this in your mind. That when Paul says, what we are is known to God, and if you find yourself saved, then you are a, a sinner redeemed, a sinner reconciled, a sinner ransomed. But you are known to God, which means every sin that you have ever committed, the darkest thought of your heart, the worst moment of your life that is still hidden to the world, the daily common sins with which you spit on the face of Jesus, all of it is known to God, and all of it was cast upon Christ at Calvary. Guys, when we have this impersonal view of salvation, where we start to say that the Lord God looked upon my sin and he crumpled it up and he cast it on the ground and he stomped it out. That he saw our sin and he made a list of it and he canceled it out. That he crumpled it up and cast it out into the universe, out into the vastness of outer space. What we do is we paint a wrong view of God that makes him an unjust God. That is not a God to be celebrated. The Lord God did not look upon the sins of mankind and just choose to forgive them. That never happened. And as long as we're believing that something like that exchange happened, like God just decided to forgive us by casting our sin into the sea, we make God an unjust God. That's what, that's what a corrupt earthly judge does who accepts a bribe. Yeah, I know they're guilty, but I'll just look the other way. God has said of himself that he's perfectly holy and perfectly just and perfectly good. He cannot leave sin unpunished. We wouldn't want him to. And even if we received that type of corrupt pardon, we would spend eternity then aware that we're really guilty. That we're actually guilty and he's just chosen to look the other way. Christ has achieved something so much better than that. 
and that when God looks at you, he is not unjust in pardoning. He said, he said that the Lord is merciful and abounding in steadfast love, but he will by no means clear the guilty, that he will visit the iniquity of men on their, on their, on the, to the 10th generation. This is our God. So how can it be that he can look upon sinful man like you and I and call us forgiven? It is because Jesus took that list that, 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 that was crumpled up. It wasn't thrown on the ground and stomped on. It wasn't cast into the sea. All of the sins of mankind spanning thousands of years of human history and billions of human beings was heaped in one moment upon the shoulders of the Son of God, Jesus Christ, and he was crushed. Jesus Christ was crushed for your transgressions. Your sins have been punished. Justice was executed. The Lord did not pardon your sin without punishing it. The Lord has pardoned your sin because it's been punished. But in his grace, he removed it from you and placed it on the shoulders of Christ before he poured out the cup of his wrath. And in that moment, as Jesus hung on a cross, all that is known to God here, where Paul says what we are is known to God, all that was known to God about the deep, dark corners of the hearts of man heaped upon Christ and then crushed. That moment where he trembled, where the martyrs stood confident, his trembling was in that moment where, where God the Father would look upon Jesus and turn his face away that he would cast him into the grave, despised and rejected, and say, I cannot stand to look at you. He would be separated from God. And if Gus could track with me this far, Gus would then ask the question, well, how can one guy getting the punishment that humans deserve pay for all humans? That's a good question, and we should ask it. And the answer to that is because Jesus Christ lived the perfect life. You see, it wouldn't be enough to have God know everything about you and cancel that record and give you a fresh start. The Lord God and Jesus Christ has not given you a fresh start by which to rewrite your narrative and live a better life. You would then need Jesus to die a thousand deaths again and again on your behalf as you played out the same storyline over and over again, a slave to the sin that clings so tightly. So how can it be that Jesus Christ died once and for all, for all men? Because he did more than cancel the record of our debt by taking it upon himself and receiving its due punishment, but in its stead, he has given us his perfect life. All week I was hanging out and meditating on this idea that Jesus Christ lived a perfect life. And it's, we can't get our hands around it, but it's, maybe we can start by thinking about this. This was helpful to me. Maybe if we just reduced human righteousness to obedience to the, great, the greatest command, just one command, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. 
the totality of humankind spanning the whole history of creation, thousands of years, billions of people, not one man, save for Jesus Christ, has spent one second of his life loving the Lord his God with all his heart, soul, mind, and strength. Not one, and yet Jesus, in human flesh, never spent one moment not loving the Lord his God with all his heart, soul, mind, and strength. The Lord Jesus lived the perfect life such that when he gave it up willingly for you and I, it was a sacrifice so perfect that it appeased the wrath of holy God for all mankind, one man. It's perfect life, sufficient replacement for all of our best offerings. You are known to God. And getting your eyes on what I've just described is how we come to know the fear of the Lord. And it's from that place that Paul is compelled to persuade others. Moving through our text, we are not commending ourselves to you again, but giving you cause to boast about us so that you may be able to answer those who, who, um, answer those who boast about outward appearance and not about what is in the heart. For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God, but if we are in our right mind, it is for you. If you read the whole letter to the Corinthians, you'll find around chapter 7 what Paul's talking about. People in the city of Corinth are hurling all kinds of accusations against Paul and the other apostles. All kinds of claims about them, trying to, trying to convince the people to disregard the message of reconciliation that they carry. Saying, look at Paul. Look at his rags. He's nothing to write home about. In chapter 7, it'll say that he's accused of writing really powerfully in his letters, but when you meet him, he's really not that bold. Accusing him of being a hypocrite, that he puts on his big boy pants when he's writing letters, but he's actually pretty meek if you were to meet him, that you don't need to pay him any mind. Saying that when you look at him, to look at him is to remember, wait, we know this guy. He's not impressive. He says, I'm giving you an answer to those who boast in outward appearance and not in what is in the heart. I, what I am is known to God, and I hope that it will be known to your conscience. Listen to me, not because I'm impressive, not because I've earned anything. Listen to me because I am a sinner ransomed, and you are a sinner condemned. The Lord sees the heart. And when he sees my heart, he declares it pure and perfect and undefiled. I have been made spotless. That is why you should listen to me. He says, if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. He's responding to those who are calling him crazy. He's, people say, I'm crazy, okay. If I'm crazy, it's for God. If I'm in my right mind, it's for you. Anything that I might be able to produce in word or deed to persuade you, to compel you, to reason with you, to see this, it's for you. Verse 14, for the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died and he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves but for him who for their sake died and was raised. Paul says, the love of Christ controls me. Not the love of Christ 
advises me, not the love of Christ motivates me, not the love of Christ inspires me or educates me or informs me. The love of Christ controls me. By what means? Because I've concluded this, that one has died for all. And he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. You want to know why when you stand before the judgment seat of God, he will declare you perfect and spotless and mean it? Because one has died and he died for all. See, our just God will not punish sin twice. Our just God will not punish sin twice. Your sin, if you are a sinner ransomed, has been punished. Your death is a historical event. Your death already happened. Your sinful life was heaped upon Jesus Christ and he died the death that you deserve to die for you such that you will never die that death. It happened. It is a historical event. One died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves but for him who for their sake died and was raised. What he's saying is that the old you is literally dead. That Father God regards the sinful condemned version of you properly judged properly condemned dealt with on someone else's shoulders and given that you will no longer answer for your sin because that self was crucified with Jesus and Jesus rose again you too have been risen in new life to live no longer for yourself who has died but to live for the one who has raised for you Jesus Christ. And this is what Paul says when he says, the love of Christ controls me. Verse 16, from now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh, even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Paul says, we don't regard anyone according to the flesh anymore. I did that with Jesus, made that mistake once. I don't do that anymore. When I see people, I see spiritual beings. I see new creations. I see this whole thing through a new lens. And we're talking about Paul here. We're talking about Paul who committed his life to Jewish righteousness, who knew the laws and decrees of God frontwards and backwards, who counted himself among the self-righteous, who made it his mission to persecute and stamp out this movement of Christianity, who oversaw the stoning of Stephen, one of God's beloved children, who was marching on the road to the city of Damascus to persecute Christians there to haul them off to jail and to kill them, where Jesus Christ himself personally intervened and introduced himself and said, Paul, why are you persecuting me? And gave him the call to be a minister of reconciliation among the Gentiles, changing everything. You and I have the same story. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, 
He is a new creation. The old has passed away, and behold, the new has come. Guys, I preach about the wrath of God, the holiness of God, the justice of God, the perfection of God, the worthiness of sin to be condemned and punished, the need for God to be both good and just to punish sin. And for so many of us, that makes God seem unapproachable. Whole world religions, whole cults and ideas, false ideologies have been built on this premise that holy God is not approachable. But Paul gives us this, this assurance that the heart of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit are not different from one another, that they are one and the same, that the heart that we see in the one Christ Jesus coming and willfully living a perfect life on your behalf and crediting it to your account, that the one Jesus Christ coming and willfully dying on your behalf and crediting that punishment to your account possesses the same heart of God the Father, that all of this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself. And gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself. Not counting their trespasses against them. And entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. God thought this up. Jesus didn't go to God and say, I've got this idea, God. And God didn't say to Jesus, I've got this idea, Jesus. God, the Father, God, the Son, God, the Spirit, together dreamt up this pathway to reconciliation. Their idea, your God is utterly approachable, and he made himself known to you through the face and life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. He has known you. He has seen you. He has measured you. He has found you guilty, and he has placed that guilt upon the shoulders of Jesus Christ and condemned it and declared you spotless. Don't tell me that God's not approachable. Verse 20, or verse 19, he says, and it is that God who has entrusted us with this message of reconciliation. Verse 20, therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. God making his appeal through us. We are ambassadors of Christ. An ambassador receives his authority from the king or the monarch or the power or the government that he represents. We are bestowed with the message of reconciliation that is from God. It is God making his appeal through us. We are ambassadors and nothing more. And yet how wonderful to be ambassadors in the king's court. Do you ever think of yourself as an ambassador? That the message of reconciliation that you carry is not yours? It is God's. And he is making his appeal to the condemned world, the sick, fallen, broken, dying world 
through his ambassadors. His idea is that he would place new life, new creation in you and in me. And then equip us and empower us with the spirit that understands reconciliation to then go give it away to other people. He has entrusted to us the message of reconciliation and we are mere ambassadors for Christ. And so, end of verse 20 there, we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. How, after hearing all that has just been declared, these true things about what Jesus Christ has done on our behalf, do we need to implore people to be reconciled to God? See, when two sinners reconcile, they both bring sin into the equation. So in any degree of being wronged, you could imagine that both sides played some part in the wronging because there are two sinful sides in that. And so to mediate reconciliation, there's going to be give and take on both sides, right? But not between us and God. To sin against God is to have only one sinning party. God is perfect and holy and just and good and kind at all times. And so even the smallest sin waged against him, if reconciliation is going to be possible between the sinner and the holy God, it must be initiated by the holy God and the terms can only be set by him. We bring nothing to that. And this God, from the goodness of his own character, abounding in mercy and steadfast love, who has stayed his hand of wrath against sinful mankind, looking to the cross and knowing that Jesus Christ would absorb the wrath that was due to sinful mankind, offers reconciliation, but only by one manner, by receiving the due payment of Jesus Christ. It's the only way. And some stand in this room this morning, believing that they are bargaining with God for reconciliation, that somehow by their good works, somehow by their church attendance, somehow by their tithing, somehow by their community service, somehow by being an upstanding citizen, by not sitting in this way and by serving in this way, that I am leveraging the good favor of God. And I tell you that you stand condemned before God. If you are bartering with him in any way whatsoever, you will not find your righteousness there. Our righteousness is found in Christ alone. And so he appeals to the Corinthian church, and I appeal to you, and we appeal to Mascuda and Scott Air Force Base. Be reconciled to God. How? Verse 21. For our sake, God made Jesus to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This is it. This is the message of reconciliation. It's one sentence. It's not hard, and yet it's so amazing. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Scripture says, cursed is any who dies on a tree. Jesus Christ was cursed. He became the one thing he would never do. He became the one thing he would never say, the one thing he would never think. He became sin. 
he became a curse. Quick theology of curses, guys. On the day of judgment, when God separates the goats from the sheep and cleanses the earth of all sin in order to create a dwelling place fit for the cleansed, perfect people of God to dwell forever in the presence of God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, he will cast out of his sight all those who stand condemned by their sin. Okay? And the angels will roar and the church of Christ will roar with praise that the earth is rid of you. That it has been purged of your sin. The stain on God's perfect creation. All sin will be punished. You'll pay for it or Christ will pay for it. But all of it will be punished. And so our great hope is this, that for our sake, Christ was made to be a sin who knew no sin. Every sin that I have ever committed will ever commit. The sins of my deep, dark heart and the sins of my hands have all been pinned to the cross with Jesus Christ so that when I stand before God, he sees me spotless. And this is true for you if you're in Christ. It is by this exchange that we can be reconciled to God. And this alone is the message of reconciliation. This alone is the ministry of reconciliation. So church, hear me. Some of us need to shut up. Every other message on our lips but the message of reconciliation calling the world into morality, into all kinds of things that are nothing but shackles and slavery, invitations to see God differently than how he has revealed himself through Christ Jesus. And we need to silence ourselves and remember that we are ambassadors for Christ and we carry his message. And it is Heinous heresy for us to march around as ambassadors for Christ carrying a message that he has not given us. He has given us this message that Christ died for all and for our sake he has made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God full stop. That is the message that you have been entrusted with as an ambassador for Christ. And for each one of us who needs to silence ourselves, there is another who needs to speak up. Because we are ambassadors, what a waste for the Lord to have us remain here among the dead and dying with the message of life and to keep it to ourselves. We are jars of clay carrying a treasure too good for words, and so he provided the words for us in a sentence. But we're to speak it as ambassadors for Christ. And if you speak it, you may find yourself persecuted. You may find yourself mocked, rejected, scorned, despised, just like the one who went before you in all things. But then you enter into an eternity of glory with him. And you're invited into that to participate now as children of Christ redeemed. So all sinners redeemed, all sinners reconciled, all sinners 
ransomed in the church of God, I ask you this morning, pray with me that the Lord would silence us for a moment, bestow on us again this message of reconciliation, and then empower us by his spirit to be ambassadors for Christ, to give it away. Let's pray that together now.